The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer, so if necessary, you can use 1 John 1, 9, and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, be restored to fellowship and ready to concentrate and take in the Word of God this beautiful spring morning. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can come before your throne of grace this morning. You are a God who has declared the end from the beginning and that you have made complete, sufficient provision for every need in our lives, starting with the cross, which is the basis for that provision. Through Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, so that we might have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for your word, which reveals to us everything we need to know. Father, we pray that as we study it, we may be not only challenged by it, but the Holy Spirit who fills us will help us to understand these things and see how they relate to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One other announcement for those of you who have been faithfully callousing your knees in prayer this week for Dan. He is doing quite well. When the surgeon got in to looking at him, I told him that he has had now quite an intimate encounter with his doctor. He, uh, they discovered that he had the shortest colon on record. That's one reason they couldn't get past the, uh, the blockage was they were at the end of the colon, which also meant that it's in the area of the colon called the cecum. And normally when you discover a cecum uh, tumor, it is when you wake up in the middle of the night screaming in agony and by then it's metastasized and it's too late. So the fact that this was discovered at such an early stage, they were able to do the surgery uh, when he was prepared for uh, everything, and therefore all cleaned out, meant that there was no threat of infection or anything else. This was absolutely the best possible scenario. And so he is doing quite well. They do not anticipate any post-surgery follow-up in terms of chemotherapy or radiation or anything like that. And he's doing great quite a weird experience when I called him up on the phone yesterday to hear my voice coming over the phone to listen to tape. So, glad to know he's using his time in the hospital to his advantage. 
but he says quite well appreciates the flowers that we sent. They're red, white, and blue. He thought that was appropriate. And uh, he's, uh, uh, he appreciated that and the prayers of everybody. And he should be going home. They, they're not, when I talked to him yesterday morning, they, they still won't know until um, he, he starts, uh, they get all the tubes and everything out of him. But it'll probably be Tuesday or Wednesday before they can, uh, uh, they'll, they'll let him go home. But everything looks good, so he's, he's excited about getting back. As a student, he's got midterms and papers and everything this week, so he's all upset about that. But I know his professors will work with him, so we can pray with him on those issues as well. Okay, we're continuing our study this morning in the Old Testament, getting uh, an overview, orienting ourselves to the Old Testament. And one of the things that I have pointed out continuously is that the Old Testament is the background and foundation to the New Testament. And one problem that many people have in misinterpreting, misunderstanding, misapplying the New Testament is they just don't have an Old Testament background. And when you get into the Old Testament, the foundation for understanding everything in the Old Testament is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, also called the Law or the Torah from Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it is there that God lays the foundation for this new work that he's doing in history in a nation called Israel, the nation of the Hebrews, the descendants of, of Abram. Now, if you look at the overall scope of those, those initial five books, we saw that the first 11 chapters really served as sort of a historical prologue, much on the model of the secular treaty called a suzerain-vassal treaty form. And in that, those first 11 chapters, very little actually is told us. We look at those 11 chapters and compare it to the fact that they cover, realizing they cover over our approximately 2,000 years in church history, I mean, in, uh, in history, and yet they just give such a cursory evaluation and uh, cursory information about that time. We're often left with a lot of questions. And yet the information that is provided in those first 11 chapters is exactly what God wants us to know in order to understand why he brings this new nation into existence. So that the core, the heart of the, the teaching in Genesis really begins in Genesis chapter 12. And we saw how that slows down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs, God calling out a new nation. And we see its purpose in, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, that God is calling out this new nation to be a kingdom of priests, so that Israel functions to all the other nations on the earth as a intermediary, as an intermediary priest nation. It is through Israel, according to the Abrahamic covenant, that God will bless all of the other nations. Now, because uh, Israel has been brought to this position, God expects more of Israel than He does of all the other nations. All of the other nations are still under the Noahic covenant. Now, I made it, I've made it a point, emphasized, because of things going on in the secular world at this time with the capital punishment and everything, I made the point that, that the Noahic covenant, among all the stipulations there, also not only authorizes but mandates capital punishment. And one question that was asked, in fact, it's the same question that was sort of stated on a paper I wrote when I was in seventh grade. You had to write a paper, one of my favorite English teachers. I wrote a paper on capital punishment defended it biblically, and her comment at the end was, well, doesn't God say vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? And that reflects a common misconception. Even You hear it in the news media all the time, and that is 
this confusion of vengeance with justice. Vengeance is not justice, and justice is not vengeance. When somebody murders someone, it is for the government's responsibility to execute justice. Now, if a private citizen decides to take matters into their own hands, that is vengeance. And there's no place for vengeance in the plan of God. But there is provision. God has delegated this responsibility to man as a function of justice. And it is not only authorized, it is mandated. Now, in terms of the background, what we have seen is that there are three items necessary to make a nation. First, you have to have a people, and this... In what, uh, this began when God called out Abram, Avram, in Genesis chapter 12, and the development of the people, uh, his descendants through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then he took the people into captivity in Egypt, and there on the analogy of a fetus in the womb, this infant nation grows to maturity, and then there is the birth, the birth pangs of the ten plagues, and the nation, the people come out from Egypt in the uh, event of the Exodus, which is a type or picture of our redemption from slavery as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're brought out from, the, uh, the, the Jews are brought out from, from the nation. They're taken to Sinai. They spend a year camped out at the base of Sinai. And it is there that God gives to Moses the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, which is a temporary and conditional covenant, which is designed to provide the people with a body of law. That serves as their constitution. So the first two elements are in place. You have a people, you have a constitution, and now God is going to give them the land. This is the focus of the next couple of books in the Old Testament, uh, Joshua and Judges, which we will cover this morning. So we want to look in terms of background to a couple of passages to understand God's mandate for Israel's foreign policy. You can open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. In verse 18, we find the core of this instruction. Now we'll go through this passage, look at the details, but, but first to see where it is going, look at verse 18. In order that they may not teach you, see the purpose for the foreign policy, there is a specific rationale for why God is doing what he is doing and why God mandates the absolute annihilation of the Canaanites. Not only are they to be destroyed, every man, woman, and child, it is total warfare, but their cattle, their sheep, everything is supposed to be destroyed because... It teaches something about the infectiousness of sin. And this doesn't sit well. The concept of total war and annihilation doesn't sit well with modern man. I find it interesting. There's a lot of parallels right now between what we covered the last couple of Sundays and the second hour on cosmic thinking and what really is going on here as a typology in the Old Testament. Because the Canaanite worldview, their, their culture... It represents for us and foreshadows for the believer the fact that we too live in the world and we are not to be uh, we're not of the world but we live in the world and we're supposed to have a certain attitude of separation from the world and this is what is portrayed historically for us in these Old Testament events. Now I want to say a word about this because there's a lot of confusion for folks 
And that is that when you get into the Old Testament, these are literal historical events. But God has so chosen to, uh, to reveal them to us and to record these particular events and not other events in order to teach spiritual principles. And the Jews understood this, and Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these things have happened as an example to us. So this morning what I want to look at is, number one, the historical events that took place, why they took place, the way they took place, and then stop a couple of times as we go through and then draw some spiritual application for us in the church age. Because we must remember that in the Old Testament concept of foreshadowing and typology, Israel stands as, as the individual believer in the, in the church age. It is not that every person in Israel is saved, but Israel as the nation is portrayed as a redeemed nation. They are portrayed as saved. The Exodus redeems them. The law uh, is the point at which they are given the revelation of God as to how they are to live. The rituals that are described in uh, uh, the tabernacle worship represent the spiritual life of the nation. In the same way, each individual believer is, is elected, selected, chosen by God. That goes back to Abraham. We are redeemed at the cross. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're redeemed. Then we have the, new, the revelation of God, which describes for us how to live and gives us the priorities, and procedures, and principles of Bible doctrine so that we know how to live. That's the analogy. Now, what happens is, last time we saw that when the nation Israel left Egypt, they went to Sinai, and then from Sinai, they went to take the land, and they went to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is located on the southern boundary of, of the promised land. And from there, they sent out 12 spies. God said, you send out, or Moses' instructions, God's instructions to Moses were to send out the spies so that they could understand the layout of the land. It was not to see if they could have victory, but how they were, what the obstacles were, and then they could make their plans accordingly. God had al- already promised them the land. The issue wasn't, can we defeat the enemies? The issue was, let's understand what, who the enemies are and what the situation is so that we can make wise planning as we defeat them. Now, the same thing is true in the spiritual life of the believer. God has already given us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is stated at the cross. It is ours already. We are saved at the moment of salvation from the penalty of sin. But the spiritual life itself is the process whereby we realize that victory on a day-to-day basis in uh, gaining control over the sin nature. We are freed positionally from the power or the enslavement to the sin nature, but we nevertheless have to implement a biblical doctrines, biblical principles under the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit in order to realize that victory in our day-to-day life. And that's the whole process of the spiritual life. What we have to realize is that the principle is true in the spiritual life today just as it was in the national life of Israel, and that is the battle is the Lord. The, The ultimate victory that God is giving Israel in giving them what he has promised them It is his to give. It is not theirs. Therefore, the procedures are going to be divine procedures. They're not going to be human viewpoint procedures. And God is going to show Israel in all of this and show to us 
that the issue is obedience to God. The issue is not relying upon what may appear to us to be common sense or the way everybody else is doing it or pragmatic, it's successful, therefore it should be right. The issue is what does God say? Now, in, in terms of this, uh, what's called the ban or the command to annihilate all of the Canaanites, the background really goes back to, once again, the Noahic Covenant. And at that time, just after that, uh, Noah pronounced a blessing on Shem and on Japheth and a curse not on Ham, but on Ham's, grand, uh, on Ham's son, Noah's grandson, Canaan, because in Canaan was foreshadowed all of the uh, sexual proclivities and perversities of the Canaanite people. And God has given them time and time and time again the grace in order to uh, turn to him. But they have sunk deeper and deeper into all of their various perversions. And so God is going to discipline the Canaanites by annihilating them. They have now given up their right to life. And so God is going to take the land away from them and take their culture away from them through discipline and using the Israelites to execute that discipline. So God mandates that every single one be destroyed. God can do that. The picture here is of the sovereignty of God. God is the one. Uh, Job says, Bless, uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All the earth is the Lord's. He has the right to determine how it is used and what happens to the people on the earth. So the ultimate issue here goes back to divine authority. And God mandates this because he knows that once the Jews go into this Canaanite culture, he knows the devastating consequences that that perverse culture will have upon their thinking and it will uh, take them uh, away from God. So he wants to annihilate them. And the picture there is the same picture the Lord has for us in the spiritual life is he wants a complete removal uh, from our lives and separation from those influences that, that we may enjoy and that may give us much pleasure, but that distract us and tempt us and take us away from an exclusive devotion to the Lord. So this is the background to Deuteronomy 20.18. In order that they, that is the Canaanites, may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now God is going to give to Israel a specific foreign policy and as we will see a specific military policy and strategy for taking the, the land which goes against all normal concepts of, of uh, military and, and uh, foreign, foreign policy. There are in this passage, we go back to verse 10, there's two categories, the two phases of this foreign policy. First of all, let's read verses 10 and following. When you approach a city to fight against it, first of all, you shall offer it terms of peace. So they would offer certain um, terms of peace, and these were the cities far off. This is not cities inside Canaan itself, but these are cities in what was called what is called the Transjordan the, today we call it the eastern bank, the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is not in the land per se. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall first offer it terms of peace, and it shall come about if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. So right there we see how God institutes, as a matter of course, slavery. Now I'm going to challenge your thinking a little further. 
God does not authorize, God does not uh, give principles for regulating sin. So when God gives certain policies that regulate an activity, we need to pay attention to it if we, if we from our self-righteous culture, think presuppositionally that that activity is, is sinful. See, in America we think slavery is wrong. The Bible doesn't say slavery is wrong. The Bible says slavery practiced in certain conditions is wrong. If you go back and you examine the Mosaic Law and its teaching on slavery, there is always a way for the slave to buy himself out of slavery. It is not based on racial prejudice. It is based on economics, usually. And in this case, it is based on the fact that these nations have given up their right to freedom because of their sinfulness and because of their idolatry. So ultimately, what we see here is that every issue, sooner or later, must be understood in terms of spiritual dynamics. Remember, the source of all problems is sin, and so the source of all solutions must be the spiritual solution that God provides. Now, if this nation or this city, and at this time in Canaan, it's dominated by city-states much like Greece later on, uh, you don't really have countries or nations. You have just strong strongholds. Each city has its own ruler and is, is functioning in an autonomous way, even though they may band together in somewhat of a, an alliance for, for mutual protection. Uh, verse uh, 12, However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, notice their victory is going to be from the Lord. It is not de determined by their military prowess or their technology. It is dependent upon the Lord who either gives them success or not. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Now remember, this is talking about the cities outside the land. So all the males were to be eliminated. Verse 14, Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take his booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. So the Lord authorizes that they take all this spoil, all this booty for themselves as a foundation for their future economy. Verse 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. So the point that he is making is that these, these nations have an opportunity to keep their possessions and to keep their life. They're given the choice, and they're given offers of peace, and if they reject that, then they lose everything. This is no different from the offer of the gospel today. There's only one way to come to peace with God, and that is through Jesus Christ at the cross. Modern man, the world system, has a terrible problem with the exclusivity claims of Christianity. If any of you watched um, Larry King this last week, there was a couple of nights I watched part of it. He had various leaders from the Jewish community, Roman Catholic community, Protestant community on, and they were talking about the Pope's visit, some of the things that he was saying in Israel. And one of the issues they focused on was the exclusivity claims of Christianity. And there was a rabbi on there, and this rabbi has uh, Harold Kushner. He wrote a book called uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, and his basic thesis is because God doesn't have control, never did have control. I think that, that uh, Kushner's out of control, but nevertheless, he's tried to make a case 
They had Don Carson on, Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson from Trinity, was one of the evangelicals there from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was a very lordship guy, in my opinion. He really doesn't differ a whole lot from Roman Catholicism at its core, but nevertheless, we won't get into that. Carson made the point that, that, that uh, whenever you say something is right or true, then that automatically in, makes, makes the statement that everything else is false. And uh, Kushner wants to say, that no, 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 no. Just be, you can believe that something is right without inferring that everything else is, is wrong. And he gave the uh, insipid example of, of what a husband saying to his wife, you are the most wonderful woman in the world. Well, anybody who understands language knows that there's a difference there. He tried to argue that if you say your wife is the, tell your wife she's the most wonderful woman in the world, you're not saying that everybody else is, every other woman in the world is not as good and not as wonderful a wife as she is. And Carson made the point that, that, of course you are, if you take it literally. Now, he didn't go any further because he didn't have time in the format, but when, you, when a husband says that to his wife, he's really making an idiomatic compliment to his wife, saying that as far as I'm concerned, and in my life, you are the most wonderful woman in the world. You are not, he is not making a qualitative statement of comparison uh, of the, her to every other woman in the world. And so you get into these language distinctions, but I just want to point that out because the world despises the fact that Christians claim that there is one and only one way to have peace with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And the inference of that is that every other system is completely and totally false and will not get anyone anywhere, and therefore, because it ends up condemning people to the lake of fire, all these other systems, no matter how good they might be, no matter how wonderful, no matter how much they might work for some people, they are all evil. Islam, Buddhism, liberal Christianity that denies the deity of Christ and the substitutionary atonement of Christ are all evil systems, and those who promote those systems are also evil. That's why both John the Baptist and Jesus uh, compared the uh, Pharisees to vipers and false teachers and everything else because of the uh, evil consequences of what they were teaching. The Scriptures teach that there is only one way to God, and that is through the seed of Israel, Jesus Christ, who is called the seed of Israel in Galatians chapter 3. So God wants to establish the fact here in, in, in conducting Israel's foreign policy this way and the annihilation of the Canaanites, what God is doing is providing a framework whereby this new nation, this kingdom of priests, can live in the land as a righteous nation and an example of righteousness to all of the nations. So the first stage of the foreign policy deals with those nations in the Transjordan area, and then verses 16 and following deals with the uh, foreign policy towards those who are in the cities. Verse 16, only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. That is total warfare, not just human beings, but everything. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, these are the various ethnic groups that are all living in the land that God has promised. Now, they are a variety of ethnic groups, but it's sort of a cultural melting pot, and they all hold to the same cultural values and the same basic religious system, which by this time is, is uh, practicing... Uh, human sacrifice, it's uh, deeply involved in all kinds of sexual perversion, per perversions and the phallic cult and fertility worship and everything that went along with it, including uh, temple prostitution. 
and they are a, a degraded society. So it is time now, as the cancer is removed and excised from the body, it is time for the Canaanite culture to be removed and excised from the human race. You shall utterly destroy them, and then verse 18, which we have already read, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now this is God's mandate. God is going to provide the way for them to conquer them, though. This was what Israel failed to understand at the first payday. Did we just lose that? Has it been that way? Thank you for telling me. We haven't had anything up there at all? When, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for informing me. Who's the deacon here? Who, any deacons here? Good, they're all fired. Now, y'all try to, try to quit being such passive sheep. Yeah, I just turned the power off. You all have to quit being such passive sheep. If I'm up here teaching and there's nothing up there, you need to tell me. We have wasted time. That's unacceptable behavior. That really angers me. Somebody, when something like this is going on, you need to inform me. I don't turn around and look at that all the time. I just assume it's there. Okay. So much for using the map. Okay, let's turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, and we see the outline organization. God's instructions to Joshua. Look at verse 6. Joshua 1 6. God says to to Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So this is a reference back to God's promise, his unconditional promise to provide the land for the nation Israel. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. So this is the foundation by which the... Um, the nation is to conquer. It is by obedience to God's will. Now, the analogy for the Christian life is as long as you're following God's word and you're applying God's word, then it is God who then gives the victory. See, what we've gotten confused about is the idea that Christians are the ones that ultimately determine the victory in their Christian life. And that is nothing more than sort of a morality and ethical pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thinking. And what we are going to see in Joshua is that this victory is not given because the Israelites practiced the latest in military strategies, because they had the wisest of military generals, or because they had the latest technology. It is because God gives them the victory. So the foundation is to be obedient to the law. And we saw last time that this is the issue in the entire history of the nation Israel that in Israel's history they, are to, they will be blessed as long as they are obeying the law and God is going to bless them economically, bless them in terms of their agriculture, bless them in terms of the weather. He's going to remove the wild beasts from the land. All 
manner of consequences follow because of God's because of their obedience to the Mosaic law. On the other hand, if they're disobedient, they're going to be a whole series. We saw five cycles of discipline culminating in the fifth cycle, which is removal of the people uh, from the land. Now here the foundation is to uh, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. This is just a reminder and then in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Now the interesting thing is that the next phrase, Do not tremble or be dismayed, those words are found again when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and you find David going against Goliath, or at least Goliath is the champion of the Philistines, coming out and challenging the nation. What's their response? They are trembled, they tremble, and they are dismayed. And you see these key words develop throughout the Old Testament and they're they, they always relate back to this failure to uh, apply the law and to be obedient. So the issue here is if you are obedient, you will be strong and courageous. If you are disobedient because of the consequences of sin in the land, the result is fear in the face of adversity and fear in the face of the enemy. The promise is in the last clause. Literally, it's a causal key in the Hebrew, a preposition key. Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So the foundation for their victory is in the Lord and His provision for the nation. Now when they go into the land, draw a rough picture here. Here's the sea coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This there, over here you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Jordan River then flows south down to the Dead Sea. It is this area over here to the east that is called the Transjordan. The tribe of Reuben, the two tribes of Reuben and Gath settle on Transjordan side. Kadesh Barnea is located down here to the south. They come across, in terms of their invasion, they come across through the land, circle the land of Moab, and then they come to the Jordan River. It is here at Mount, uh, Mount Ebal that Moses goes to the top of the mountain and Moses is taken to be with the Lord. Uh, they never found his body. Nobody knows what happened. There's a story. There's the, uh, we are told in Jude that the angel, uh, angels fought with a demon over possession of his body, with Satan over possession of his body. But he is not allowed to go into the land to possess it because of his sinful failure at uh, the second time he had, instead of hitting the rock, he was to speak to the rock for water to come forth. He disobeyed God. And because of that disobedience, in spite of all of his obedience and all the wonderful things Moses did, his tremendous spiritual maturity, he was not allowed to enter the land. The only two that were allowed to enter the land were Joshua and Caleb. And at this time, they are probably close to 80 years. They are close to 80 years of age, and everyone else is much, at least 20 years younger. They come into the land, and the first place they hit is Jericho. Jerusalem is located. Right, we'll put a J here for Jerusalem, and then this dot here is Jericho. And Jericho is a fortified city. Now, 
when this is emphasized in the text that this is a fortified city, your mind should go back to what happened at the first Kadesh. When the spies went into the land, they came back and they said there's three problems. There's giants in the land, the people are numerous, there's too many of them, and they have fortified cities. Now God is saying, okay, we have lots of problems in your life, and I'm going to show you that I can solve all the problems in your life. The first problem they face is this military problem of a, of a fortress. Now you would think that they would come back and say, okay, we have to solve this problem. Let's get out our, our military textbooks, our field manuals, and figure out what the latest technology is in siege warfare, and then we're going to attack uh, the city, attack Jericho. God says, no, I'm going to show you how we're going to do this. We're going to set seven priests with seven trumpets out in front of the people. Then all the tribes are going to march in order, and they will go forth, and they will circle the city of Jericho once a day. I want you to think about this a minute. There are approximately there are approximately two and a half million Jews at this time. Turn with me. Let's look at the instructions in Joshua chapter six. Verse two, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. So there were about 600,000 men of war, maybe a little less, at least 600,000 over the age, approximately 600,000 over the age of 20. Let's say they have an army of 500,000. So if you march them, this is going to be a huge number of people walking around the city. This isn't just some small line, a couple hundred people out there walking around beating tambourines and blowing trumpets. This probably took most of the day or a good part of the morning for them to walk around the city. And you can imagine what the inhabitants of Jericho were thinking at the time. So God says, these are the instructions. You're going to take seven, seven priests with seven trumpets. They'll stand at the head of the line. They'll walk around the city once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, you will follow the same procedure. During this entire time, no one is to say a word. The only noise that's to be produced is the, the, the blast of the trumpet. Then on the seventh day, Continuing in silence except for the trumpet, you'll go around the city seven times. When that's over, the, everyone will shout, top of their lungs, the walls will fall down. What God is demonstrating here is that victory comes on God's terms, not on man's terms. And that God's way may seem foolish to man, which is the whole theme of First Corinthians chapter two, that the foolishness of God that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God and the wisdom of God is, is foolishness to man or the foolishness, <clears throat> foolishness of uh, wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Now the point is that God has a specific procedure for exercising victory over the nation, the nation states in, or city states in, in Canaan, and they are conquered one at a time according to God's rules, not according to human viewpoint thinking. Now the picture that we should have in our minds spiritually in terms of application is that the land... This whole promised land here that God has has given to Israel represents the believer's life. At the moment of salvation, you're out here. You have a life, you have a thinking that is dominated by all kinds of sin patterns, all kinds of sin habits, all kinds of cosmic ideas, worldly thinking, all sorts of opinions and thoughts. And your job as sanctification is to eliminate all of that from your life under the power of God the Holy Spirit through studying the Word of God. 
And this is analogous to what happens here. Israel goes into the land. They come along here. They go into the land. First they take out Jericho. Then they take out Ai. And they go into the central hill country. Then they send out troops south. And they start eliminating the major strongholds. They had sent another force up north. And they eliminate uh, the various strongholds in the land. This is analogous to what is to happen in the spiritual life. We start dealing with certain bad habits. We start dealing with certain major sins that dominate our lives uh, through application of doctrine, filling of the Holy Spirit. But what happened in, in the uh, life of Israel is so often the same pattern you see in the life of a believer. You see, somebody's first day, they've got a lot of problems in their life. They've come out of drug abuse. They've come out of this problem, whatever it is. They're miserable. They're unhappy. Now they're saved. They start growing. They start advancing. And they deal with the major problems in their life. And now there's a measure of stability, there's a measure of happiness, and there's a measure of success in their life. And what happens? They lose momentum. They stop at that point and they relax. They don't pursue the spiritual life all the way to spiritual maturity. And this is exactly what happens in the life of Israel in the, in the shift from Joshua to Judges. In the book of Joshua, you see the nation as victorious over the Canaanites. But they are simply taking out all of the major strongholds. Now, when they come into the book of Judges, what happens is they don't carry out God's command to the fullest extent. They do not annihilate every man, woman, and child among the Canaanites in the Canaanite culture. They leave them alive. They begin to operate on some liberal thoughts. Well, we just can't kill everybody. Who... What, what right do we have to kill all of these people and take their lives? And they begin to uh, exercise their own judgment and authority independent from that of God. And so there are pockets left, strongholds of Canaanite culture that are left in the land. And it is from these strongholds of Canaanite culture that you get the influence now on the nation. And so the whole book of Judges is a description of what happens in the life of the nation. They, not, they, they reach a certain level of, of victory and then they begin to compromise and it all begins to fall apart and they go through seven different cycles of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. And that's basically the story of, of uh, Judges. Turn with me now to Judges chapter... Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Verse 11. This is a summary of the entire book of Judges. Now the main verse, the key verse in this, um, in this particular book is stated twice in order to make sure that we don't miss it. In Judges 17.6, in Judges 21-25, we read, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. See, this is Judges is really a book. That's why all of this, in some sense, is an introduction to a study we're going to have of the book of Judges. Judges is a book for our times. It's a book about the impact, the result of cultural relativism on the Jews after the conquest because they failed to execute God's plan precisely, and in its place they compromise, and then compromise always leads to assimilation of false values. And the underlying issue 
is authority, and that is the why authority is the foundational issue in every everything in life. That's why it's important for you parents to be inculcating your children with authority orientation to understand those those principles so that when they get older they have respect for authority and they can have respect for the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God. That is why in Protestant theology we have always emphasized the principle of sola scriptura that came out of the Reformation, which means the scripture alone is our authority. It's not some some uh, ecclesiastical decision from a denomination. It's not the consensus of churches. It's not anything but scripture. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. But when society moves away from the scripture as the ultimate authority, then the only thing that can replace it is something in the creation, man himself and his opinion. So what we see in the book of Judges is what happens in cultural relativism, cultural relativism when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Now let's look at Judges 2, verse 11, to get a synopsis of the book of Judges. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Now this is subsequent to their conquest under Joshua. The first ten verses of this chapter rehearse Joshua's victory over the Canaanites as they have entered into the land. The first chapter talks about how each of the tribes went in and possessed their area but came short of absolute annihilation and absolute possession. So the next generation comes along because their their parents' generation failed to apply God's word 100%. The next generation has learned from their example that you really don't have to uh, you, you can have a measure of success without complete obedience, so we'll do what we want to do. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baal. Now, this term Baal is a reference, literally it just means Lord, and is a reference to the second person in the um, pantheon of the Canaanite religion. His son, Baal. Sometimes you see the term in the plural, which is just a term for all of the false gods of the Canaanites. Now, Baal is the storm god. He's the god of of, uh, rain. He's the god of fertility. And in some cases, the god of war. And And there were various different Baals. Sometimes he was called Hadad, the storm god. He's also the god of of, uh, thunder. And lightning, and he is roughly comparable to the Roman Jupiter or the Greek Zeus. El, his father, is comparable to the, I think in uh, Roman mythology it was uh, Saturn, and in Greek mythology it was Uranus. So El and Baal, Baal becomes the dominant figure, and in an agricultural economy, Of course, it is storm, rain, fertility, all of these things that are crucial to their survival as a culture. Now, Baal has three consorts, three um, female deities that are associated with him. There is Anat, Astarte, and the Asherah. Of course, the culture is always, when a culture creates a religion, it's always a reflection of their their value system 
and then of course because they create gods who imitate them. So we see this that the immorality and the perversion of the Canaanite culture in their mythology. All three of these goddesses, Anat, Astarte, and the Asherah, are principally concerned with sex and war. They conceive, but they never bear. They're very sensuous in their function, but they are not maternal. They are perennially fruitful, but they never bear. They are perpetually virgins. They never lose their virginity, and they are referred to as mother goddesses, and they function as divine courtesans. In fact, they are sometimes referred to simply as the virgin goddess. Now, if you come out of a background in Roman Catholicism, you can certainly see where this cultural idea was picked up later on and assimilated into Christianity. One of the things that happened in the early centuries of Christianity, the primary 3rd, 4th, 5th century and later, is as missionaries went into cultures, instead of having a head-on confrontation with their religions and their worldviews, what they would do, and you see, even see Christians today practicing this and in, in, in witnessing, they come along and they say, well, you know, what you believe really isn't that different from what we believe. And so they begin to compromise and try to make Christianity more culturally acceptable and they begin to assimilate and adapt it to this foreign culture that it's going into. And what would happen in many of the cases when they went into North Africa and went into areas in the Middle East, later when they went into areas in Northern Europe, they would take the pantheon of gods and goddesses and they would just reduce them to saints. They would take a goddess named, uh, for example, in, in, uh, I think it was in Sweden, there was a goddess named uh, Brigitte, and they just reduced her to a saint. And that saint had the same areas of, of uh, power and interest and control that the goddess had had. So really, you don't have to change your thinking that much to shift from being a pagan to being a Christian. And that's what happened. And that's where uh, you get a source of a lot of these things over the ages. And the whole concept of having a virgin goddess with a baby, they would, there, uh, there are certain statues that were found in the uh, northern African area that have their, they're, they're identical to the ancient statues of Astarte and her, her baby, because she would sometimes picture with the baby, give birth in the spring, and then he would die in the fall and come back to life. So you have the mother-child cult. And those little statues were, ju- were identical, and then they were renamed Mary and Jesus. In, a, in the Christian era. But it's the same figure, the same image, the same thing. So there's this picture of assimilation, and that is where you get historically this emphasis on Mary, and now there's the talk in Roman Catholicism about making her the co-redemptress with Christ and even elevating her to a level of deity. But all of this has its roots historically in the mother-child cult, which goes back to the phallic cult and the fertility religions of the ancient ancient civilizations. Now, all of these, these uh, female deities were god- also goddesses of war, and there are various pictures and portrayals of Astarte pictured as a naked woman astride a horse, bearing a shield and lance, and in uh, the various epics, she's described as, as full of bloodlust and carrying out massacres, and she would fill her temple with worshippers who she would then uh, slay so much, she would take her sword and her spear and she would just flail and go through the crowd of worshippers and cut off their heads and their arms until until the blood in the temple was running 
uh, neck deep on her horse. And so violence and sex are what is worshipped in the Canaanite culture. And this is why God had to annihilate that culture. But because of the failure of the Jews to annihilate that culture, they were attracted by the sensuality of the culture. And so they began to leave the worship of God and to get involved in the phallic cult. Verse 12. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and gave them into their hands of plunderers. So here we see the exercise of the cycles of discipline as outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. So first there is disobedience to God, rejecting God, verses 11 and 12. Then there's divine discipline in verse 2, in verse 14 and 15. Whenever they, wherever they went, verse 15, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Verse 16, then you have deliverance. There is always grace in judgment. God always provides a solution to the sin problem. So the people would come to a point where they were devastated. They were, in, uh, they were being dominated by the foreign powers, whether it was the Ammonites, Midianites, or whoever it was, the Philistines later on. And eventually they would say, they would turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, we have sinned. So you have confession of sin and a return to the Lord. And at that point, God would deliver them. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. Now the word for judges here, uh, mishpatim, is not a judge in the sense that we know, we think of a judge in our judicial system. A judge it is in the Jewish system is a combination uh, military leader, ruler, and uh, has a legal function, in, in much like this, uh, we have a judge today because they would come to Deborah and she would make decisions, but she also led armies with, with Barak, Gideon led armies, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a combination position, part military, part judicial, uh, part executive of the nation. They did not listen to their judges, they're immoral, they're, they're unfaithful to the covenant with God, and they would just turn around as soon as things were going good again, they would turn their back on God, and they would go back. It sounds, has a common ring to it. People often, you know, when life gets bad, they turn to the Lord, and they get interested in doctrine again, they show up at church, and then everything kind of smooths out, and they start getting distracted until everything uh, falls apart again, then they come screaming back to God as if God is simply there to take care of them when they have problems. So they continue to go through this cycle. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers, that is, in obedience to the Lord. Verse 18, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hands of the enemy, their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when that judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. So there is a, there's not only this cycle 
of disobedience, discipline, deliverance, but there is a decline. It gets worse. Each cycle, uh, there are seven cycles of this through the book of Judges, and each one gets worse. Each one lasts longer until you come to the last one when the Philistines are dominating. God raises up Samson, but nobody wants Samson to deliver them. The Israelites are against him, the Philistines are against him, and he can't even control his own sex lust. And when the book ends, the nation is still under the heel of the Philistines. They have, they, there is no deliverance. And there's a great picture here because you, what you see is the nation is still under the oppression of the Philistines and it is not until David, David, the picture of Jesus Christ the Messiah, it is not until David comes that the people are ultimately delivered from the Philistines who in biblical typology often represent Satan. So there's a lot of uh, thematic dynamics that are going on here in an overall structure. We see that the ultimate deliverance from all of this cycle is, of course, the Messiah. And David is the anointed king and is a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So at that point, the Lord is going to leave them there. Why? Verse 22, in order to test Israel by them. So we see this continual testing or challenging. It's a picture of how we are continually tested by our own sin nature, this internal enemy that we have in order to test us to see if we will walk with the Lord. So this is the picture that is that is given us. There are seven cycles that take place. It begins with Othniel. Othniel, who is the uh, nephew or son-in-law, uh, excuse me, of Caleb, and he has a um, he is probably the most spiritually uh, astute of this whole crowd. Then it deteriorates. Each generation of judges becomes more and more corrupt until you end with. Uh, Jephthah and Samson. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter as a burnt offering and then Samson just can't control his lust. So it just gets progressively worse through this period of time. And then you come to the end where there are really three appendices. Ruth in the Hebrew canon is part of Judges. And you have two appendices that deal with the show the corruption of the priesthood and show the corruption of the people. And in each of those... Um, Appendices and in Ruth, the city of Bethlehem plays an important role. It is Bethlehem that is the city that where where Ruth will settle down with Boaz, and she becomes she gives birth to the grandfather of David. So if you keep Ruth as it is in the Hebrew canon as part of Judges, Judges doesn't really end on a negative note but it ends on a positive note foreshadowing the redemption and ultimate deliverance that God is going to give to the nation. Always the emphasis on God's grace, even in the midst of judgment. But in those three appendices, Bethlehem is mentioned, but Bethlehem always has a... There's always something negative about Bethlehem, always something to come back and present Bethlehem in a negative light until you get to Ruth and Boaz. And then you see this transformation of Bethlehem from a, from a negative to a positive, And it is in Bethlehem then, ultimately, that the Savior and Messiah will be born. 
So again, we see how God continues to graciously work in the lives of the people despite their sin, despite the perversity of the nation. God's grace continues to offer a uh, redemption solution in order to bring the people back to himself. So when you read through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, the picture is first in Joshua of the conquest, and God has given us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the issue to recovery or to recognize that is to live the Christian life according to God's principles and God's procedures. When God's principles and procedures are violated, then there is defeat. It is not that this is our, in a sense it is ours to lose. God has given us the victory already, but we must learn the principles of Scripture in order to realize that in our present experience. And then Judges is the picture of what happens when the believer fails, when the believer compromises, when the believer fails to submit himself to the authority of God. And then Ruth is a picture of how God is going to provide the kinsman redeemer. In the book of Ruth, you have the story of Ruth as a widow under the um, uh, leveret marriage concept of the Mosaic Law. If her husband dies and she does not have a child to raise up in his name to take his inheritance, then she is to go to his kinsman. And that kinsman is then to purchase her and he is to take her as his wife and raise up children to redeem that inheritance of the uh, dead husband who did not have a child, so the, the inheritance stays in the family. All of this is a picture of what's called the kinsman redeemer, that Jesus Christ, in order to redeem us, the, the Savior, in order to redeem mankind, has to be a kinsman. He has to be true humanity. God cannot solve it on his own, but God had to become flesh. He had to become a man in order to go to the cross because only true humanity could pay the penalty for the sins of the human race on the cross. So Ruth is a picture of this kinsman redeemer who comes and delivers uh, Ruth and in the same way Jesus Christ comes to deliver us and to pay the ransom price which is his death on the cross so that we can have eternal life. Well that covers Joshua and Judges and then next time we'll come back and we'll look at the beginnings of the monarchy. The beginnings of the monarchy, the nation's rejection of God as king, and they want to be a king like everyone else, and yet we still see God's gracious protection for the nation. So we will begin our study of the monarchy next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to study these things, to see your continuous grace throughout our lives, and that despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite the discipline that you bring in our lives because of our disobedience, your grace is always present. You always have a redemption solution. There is always an opportunity to recover, either through salvation by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior or through confession of sin. There is this continuous provision for us and our victory is already secured because of everything you have done for us at the cross. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of church membership. It is simply a matter of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and assimilate the things that we have studied today and be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.